Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice Show. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane. I'm a psychotherapist, author, and the originator of the Awareness Integration Theory. And hello to Sean, our director in the studio. This is a show that um, is about what matters most in your life. Our minds, our thoughts, feelings, emotions, relationships, and our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. Today, I will share with you the tip of the week about how to remain centered and calm while others' anxiety and rage goes rampant. Um, then I'll chat with Dr. Eric Maisel. Uh, he's the author of more than 50 books on creativity and personal growth, including The Power of Daily Practice, which we'll be talking today. He's a widely regarded um, as America's foremost creativity coach. He writes the Rethinking Mental Health blog for Psychology Today, and he facilitates creativity and deep writing workshops around the world. I will then answer some of the questions you've sent me this week about why am I shy and don't want to be around people and what to do. And then I'll bring you David Wood, a former consulting actuary to Fortune 100 companies. He built the world's largest coaching business, becoming number one on Google for life coaching and coaching thousands of hours in 12 countries around the globe. He is the co-author of the book, the mouse in the room, because the elephant is not alone. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel and connect with me through all Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, any of them. I'd love to hear from you and, um, and answer any questions you have or any, uh, bring you any topics that you like. But first, here's the tip of the week. tip of the week. One of the most requested topic is how do I not react aggressively or emotionally when others are emotional? Empathy and compassion are one of the most important and necessary values of human beings. When we see another human in pain, feel sad, or are afraid, we tend to move forward to soothe the person's emotions. However, it's harder to hold empathy and compassion for others when they're anxious or angry, especially when it's directed toward us. It appears that sadness or fear does not produce intimidation or a threat to us. Therefore, we can extend our empathy and compassion to them. Other people's anxiety produces agitation for us, most probably because it ignites our own anxiety or that the person cannot see our logic about a future that has not happened yet. However, other people's anger becomes threatening and usually ignites our own anger and defensiveness. So if mirroring and reflecting other people's emotions is a norm, then how could we stop ourselves from reacting harshly when they do? We see this in all relationships, for example, when we're driving and another driver cuts us off or looks at us with an anger or even a flips, 
Um, when we come home and our spouse is angry and kind of like lashes out, when we go to work and our boss has a bad day and demands something from us, when our customer criticizes us harshly, any of those. So how can we keep centered while others are blasting? One, don't take it personally. If someone is experiencing a feeling, it is due to their perception, not yours. Two, acknowledge that their emotions are not yours. It's theirs. Give it back to them. Three, listen to what they are saying from a third person stance versus being towards you as if you were being attacked. Four, care for them and their well-being. Five, clarify by repeating what they are saying or what you think they mean, just to clarify. Six, set boundaries if necessary. Seven, remove yourself if necessary. Eight, feel compassion for what they are going through. Nine, care for your own emotions and your body. You matter. 10, ask if you can support them in any way. And 11, act accordingly to calm the other person or offer them what they're requesting. And 12, release your tension by journaling, running, exercise, or sleeping. And 13, center yourself by imagining that you are part of nature and connected to earth. Release it. For more observational skills and learning and how to distinguish between your thoughts and emotions and behaviors and others and not get involved with others' behaviors and emotions, go to my book, Life Reset, The Awareness Integration, How to Create the Life You Want. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dr. Fujian Zain, and I am excited to be with Dr. Eric Maisel. He's the author of more than 50 books on creativity and personal growth, including The Power of Daily Practice. I need that, I'm telling you. Widely regarded as America's foremost creativity coach, he is a retired family therapist and a noted leader in the movement known as critical psychology. He writes the Rethinking Mental Health blog for Psychology Today and facilitates creativity and deep writing workshop around the world. Welcome to the show. Hi, Fujian. Great to be with you. I'm serious when I tell you I really, <laughs> really need daily practice. And I'm so glad. I'm so, it's just like I needed this book so much. Let me tell you why. I've been working about having a meditation uh, ritual for myself. I could tell you over probably 10 years. So I go to these retreats and I'm like, that's it. Right after the retreat, this is what's going to happen. And then I do a couple of days and then, you know, life takes on again or a practice of exercising. And it's funny because I'm the one who schedules my time. I know some people, you know, work with other people and they have to be at work from eight to five, nine to five. 
I do it myself. I can do whatever I want, but I don't. And it's interesting then when it comes to work and you know all the media, they are the priority, everything goes. But it comes to me, it kind of, kind of like moves backwards and kind of just goes to the other side. So your book of daily practices and how to bring that, it's awesome. And it's really needed for a lot of people because I the same issue I have, I've heard a lot of people have had. So um, tell us what the daily practice is. What does that even um, contain? Well, I've been working with creative and performing artists for maybe 35 years or thereabouts. And I've covered many of the subjects of importance to creatives like creativity and depression, creativity and anxiety, creativity and addiction. But I began to understand that one undiscovered area was the extent to which one loses weeks, months, years, and even decades of one's life without a daily practice. It seemed like such a simple, practical, everyday idea, daily practice, and yet creative folks didn't quite realize that if they started to skip maybe two or three days of their work, a whole month would vanish and they wouldn't even know where it went. So of course it doesn't matter if we skip a day with regard to whatever it is that we're trying to do. It's what happens after that second day of skipping it and how our resolve vanishes and how we don't get our work done. And I think it's pretty straightforward. The things that we're trying to do, whether it's exercise or meditation or writing a novel are actually harder to do than checking Facebook or checking our email or checking things. They're just harder. And since they're harder, we have just enough built-in resistance to skip it today. And then we skip it tomorrow and then a year has gone by. The antidote is to buy the idea of daily practice, sort of irrespective of what the content of the practice is, but just buy the idea that our days are to be made up of a collection of daily practices, whatever they are because we have multiple life purposes, because many things are important to us, there'll be many practices that are important to us. So we might have a creativity practice and a mindfulness practice, and maybe a warrior practice where, we, where we're our superhero, or maybe an activism practice or a relationship practice. It may sound funny to call these different things practices, but when you get in the habit of having those kinds of categories and saying to yourself, well, I've got three or five, important daily practices to get to, then you start to get to all of the things on your life purpose to-do list, rather than just doing all the things on your everyday to-do list. Most people are just getting the things on their everyday to-do list done, if they're even managing that, but they're not getting to the most important things in their life. And that's what the, the idea of daily practice serves, is getting to those important things. Um, you also said in your book that it is a way that you take your existence seriously. I really liked this sentence. One breath at a time, one thought at a time, one moment at a time. And it's your daily routine of paying attention to the areas where you have set in your in intentions. Um, it looks like a silence of deep space filled with a brilliant fire of single star. It is you spending a significant amount of time every day focused in one direction. 
So all people, all postmodern people, all people of the last 50 or 75 years, even if they're religious, sort of have come around to the idea that we're just excited matter passing through the universe and that we don't really matter in ways in which we want to matter. We wish we were some other kind of creature, sort of more important in the cosmos. But deep down, we kind of know that we just are going to come and go. And it's really hard for people to figure out in what ways they and their efforts do matter in that context. And so we have to circle all the way back around to the most important first principles, first questions of, I am, I'm going to spend my life in a meaningful way. I'm going to matter. I'm going to live my life purposes. And if we come all the way back around to giving life a thumbs up and being optimistic and, and donning the mantle of meaning maker saying, I make meaning. I'm not searching for anything. I'm not out there looking for meaning as if it was a, was a lost wallet. I'm gonna sit here today and do the things that are important. I'm gonna make my meaning today. It's in that context that daily practice is so important and becomes the linchpin of getting our life purposes lived. Um, what I hear from you is that we make meaning constantly anyway. The point is to be responsible for the meanings that we're making and even be intentional, uh, proactive in the yep. we want to make versus the reactive sense of anyway, we get, um, you know, through our five senses, a lot of stimuli that comes to us and we consistently make meaning on, on an unconscious level anyway, and we run our life based on those meanings. And you're saying that if we have a self-disciplined practice, that we create the meaning and uh, set out the meaning that we want to create. And obviously the other part is still going on, uh, but at least part of this is very intentional in how we want to live. And that's where the daily practice um, yep. and it allows the intentionality and manifestation of it. You mentioned the word discipline. A lot of people don't feel disciplined enough to do daily practice or to do anything in a consistent way. Pavarotti had a quote I like, which is people say I'm disciplined, but it's not discipline, it's devotion. And there's a big difference. So I think we're talking about two different things that are connected, discipline, but also devotion, which is really a synonym for love. If we're going to express our love for ourselves or our love for our families or our love for the world, our love for existence, then we need to put daily practices into place that match our intentions. It's really not so much about discipline. I don't think you, we can do the big things in life just through discipline. It's hard to write a novel just in a white knuckle way, sitting there every day being disciplined. You have to love something about it. And I think what we love is our experience of being five years old or six years old or seven years old, sitting in a corner reading a book or watching a movie or listening to music. There are some loves from childhood that we're expressing our whole life long as part of the reason that we want to institute a daily practice is to catch up with ourselves, catch up with those childhood loves and manifest them now. So you also, on the part one of your book, talk about 20 elements of practice, which has self-direction and discipline and devotion within it. Can you share a little bit about elements that you, elements of practice? Yeah, I think there are certain elements of practice that make a practice 
a practice. And person doesn't have to learn the list or make sure that each element is followed. But I think the list together gives one a good sense of how a practice is organized. And there are ideas like the obvious ones, regularity, that very basic idea of doing something every day. The idea of simplicity, the more complicated the practice, the harder it is to get to. If you're a writer, the way you should describe your practice is I write, not I write a thousand words or I write for an hour, but just I write. That simplicity is very powerful. It has to be a self-directed sort of thing. It's not something that your parents are telling you to do or your mate is telling you to do, but that you have your reasons for doing. It's something that you do in a repetitive way and re repetition can be boring, but, it, but it's also the way we learn things. By the way, just parenthetically about repetition, one of the traps, one of the reasons we leave our practice is that we feel we aren't making progress Progress is a trap word. It's a very American kind of word. We're always supposed to be making progress. But really, our daily practice isn't about making progress. It's about showing up. If we, over time, make progress, that's wonderful. But if today I play the same guitar chord I played yesterday, and if I play it again tomorrow, that's fine, because I'm really learning that guitar chord, and I don't have to make any particular progress. I've done, I've done the work by doing the same thing. So the collection of 20 elements, I think, together gives a person a good picture of how a daily practice feels. It's a serious feeling, solemn feeling, joyful feeling, special adventure that we spend every day and that we both take seriously, but also take lightly. Mm -hmm. um, it, was, it was really important what you said, because I think that most uh, people, including myself, and people that I've talked to, sometimes when we do uh, the same thing over and over again, um, you you might get bored with it. I might get bored with it and then call it no progress. And then it would be more like, well, then how am I limiting myself in that versus right. allowing, showing up, what you just said, show up and then allow it to um, naturally move to the next level that it needs to move versus creating a structure yep. that just says it's limited to this, where then I would get bored at it and end up not showing up. A kind of analogy is, you know, if you're losing weight, there's that idea of plateau, where even if you've done the right things, maybe for three or four or five or six days, you're, if you get on the scale, it's gonna be the same weight and that's disappointing because you've been doing the right thing for those three or four or five or six days. And then on the seventh day, you drop two pounds. That's that, there's the payoff. So you've been making progress on those days when the weight stayed the same. It just, the scale just didn't reflect that progress. So we, we want to be careful about using those kinds of markers as reasons for doing our daily practice. Be better not to have markers, but again, just to be showing up. In the part two of your book, you also talk about 18 different varieties of daily practices. You talk about business building, mindfulness, healing practices, and more. So share with us uh, the reasons that you look at when you have the daily practices that it needs to be in the different areas of life. As I said before, there are many things that are important to us and each one can be translated into a practice. One of the things I discovered since the book came out, a lot of people 
have wanted to adopt what I call the warrior practice. That is, they don't feel instrumental or passionate or strong enough in life. And so they may have lots of things that they want to get to, but they can't quite get to them because they, they're not feeling equal to the work. They're not feeling powerful enough. And so a warrior practice can help them with that. So what might that look like? It sounds like an oddball thing. It's not like it's not like being Batman and saving Gotham City. It's not that kind of warrior practice. It's identifying a risk that you want to take. Maybe if you're a writer, it's writing to a literary agent or that kind of risk. It's identifying a risk you want to take. Visualizing yourself in your warrior clothes and then taking that action. That warrior practice might only be three minutes. These things don't have to be an hour or hour and a half. They can be just little chunks of time. And this practice would look like you identifying a thing that you're a little scared to do, getting yourself ready to do it and doing it. And if a person did this in a daily way, he or she would finally get to those things that have felt so difficult to do. So that's so part of what I'm saying here is that these warrior practice these practices don't have to look the same size on your schedule. In fact, they don't even have to be penciled in in a certain sense. If you get the sense of daily practice in your being, then you can just turn to one of your daily practices rather spontaneously because 10 minutes have appeared and you can do some bit of mindfulness or something of your warrior practice or some bit of creativity or some part of your recovery practice if you're dealing with an addiction, you can choose to do something for the next couple of minutes that really serves your most important intentions. Um, I think that I found this past week, um, I've done that a little bit where if I had the ability to do the meditation in the morning, it, great. And then the days that I couldn't, just like you said, if it was 10 minutes here or, you know, an hour there um, that usually we're not penciled in and we're not necessarily set up for that, but it was yep. like, oh, I have the time. Great. Let me just close my eyes or, you know, space, put myself in that position and then just have, you know, whatever shows up for me in a, in a meditative state. So it felt that every day the practice was happening, but sometimes it was 10 minutes and sometimes it was an hour versus thinking that it had to be in a rigid format. So part of what I'm hearing is it really works if it's if it, it really works if you create a structured program for yourself. But even if it didn't or some yeah. days you didn't follow through that then still at any moment, remember that that practice is important and bring it up uh, whenever there is a possibility of it. And another way to say that is, um, even though we have multiple life purposes, I think many things are important to each of us. There isn't one thing that's important. Even though we have multiple life purposes, we can still create a simple life purpose statement that captures how we want to live our lives. And, and for me, that life purpose statement is do the next right thing. And I think that captures what we were just talking about, because the next right thing might be not checking email for the millionth time, but doing something more important or more valuable for the next two minutes or five minutes. It doesn't have to be for the next hour. It can be just for the next minute. And it can be a being thing rather than a doing thing. Maybe I've got myself anxious and worked up. Well, then the next right thing might be to get calm. 
or maybe you're just feeling dull, then the next right thing might be to get passionate. So I think this simple phrase, do the next right thing, can be a very rich sort of life purpose statement for anyone and help them organize their day so that they're not always looking to their to-do list, but they're looking inside for what's really the next right thing to do. And it seems like to be the antidote to feeling guilty and sense of failure also, which are part of what you talk in the book about all the challenges, but doing the next right thing, uh, right thing, it takes you from your dwelling into the past and what should have been and the shouldism, it takes you right to move forward in the next level that you need to move forward with. And as a piggyback idea, we also have to not need that next right thing to come with an emotional payoff. That is, we're doing it even if it's drudgery. Many things that we do in the service of meaning don't feel meaningful in the doing. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we may understand why it's valuable to be an activist in the service of a cause, but maybe our job today is just to lick envelopes or something. So the whole day may feel boring, but we know why we did it. We did it because we're serving this cause, which is important to us. So it's very important that we don't need the licking of envelopes to feel meaningful. It's not gonna feel particularly meaningful, but just as long as we can have this conversation with ourselves about why we did it and how it is ultimately important to us to do these sorts of things, then we don't need our activities to come with a kind of emotional or existential payoff. We're doing them because we know why we're doing them irrespective of how they're feeling. Just as a quick analogy, in the days before D-Day, we don't really care how Eisenhower is feeling. We just want him to get the invasion right. We want him to, we want him to do his job. For us too, we don't, we don't feel like life is the equivalent of, of an invasion. We don't take our life that seriously, but we should. We should take our life that seriously that we have important work to do and we're gonna do the next important thing. Dr. Eric Maisel, everyone, the book is The Power of Daily Practice, How Creative and Performing Artists and Everyone Else Can Finally Meet Their Goals. Um, In one minute or less, is there anything that we haven't talked about and you really want everybody to know? Just that for creatives, I like to sell the idea that, that their creativity practice be a morning practice. Because if you get to your creative life first thing, you get to make use of what I call your sleep thinking. That is what your brain has been doing during the night. That's a very valuable addition to your creative life. So for creatives, if you're going to institute a creativity practice, try to make it be first thing each day. Beautiful. Um, And uh, you can find Dr. Maisel at ericmaisel.com and uh, get the book. It's a wonderful book, The Power of Daily Practice. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. One of the questions that have uh, come in for me, thank you for asking those questions, is that if I am shy, if I want to isolate, if I don't feel good in front of others, 
Um, if I really don't want to be in social groups, if I'm really anxious, and even because of my anxiety, I feel depressed, what do I do? Is this a condition? Did it get created from my childhood? Is this an illness? What is it and what can I do? Well, there's a distinction between whether it's an illness or it is just a condition that you're going through. And I think part of the understanding of that is, is it stopping your life? Is it destroying your life? Is it not allowing you to move forward? Is it just an inconvenience or it actually is destroying and stopping your life? So those are the ways to look at it. Some of the um, ways that you could look at whether you have generalized anxiety disorder and you have high levels of anxiety, or you might go all the way to um, mild depression uh, or even um, a chronic depression uh, that is included with the anxiety, or that you might have antisocial personality disorder, or um, you know, there you might be in the spectrum of, um, of uh, the autism spectrum. So it could be any of that. So I would actually recommend for you to go to your psychiatrist or psychologist or psychotherapist and uh, get them take some tests. So you have an understanding of whether everything that's going on in your life is considered an illness and what the treatment is for it. And uh, what can you do to let go of that? Um, some of this could be genetic and you could see it if your family members, parents or grandparents, uncles, aunts have um, such as the same conditions that it could have been a genetic con component as it kind of moved forward and then um, to you or that it's a behavioral where you've learned it from your family because they were there and um, they were be behaving the same way. They would be um, showing and behaving in an anxious way and the thought process and the language they used, it showed more of anxiety or, um, or it was in a way that they were maybe judgmental and you felt shy and you felt like everybody was going to judge you and you created a lot of anxiety for yourself or you wanted to isolate yourself in the room. Um, depending on how it is stopping you uh, to move forward, I think it's important. There are people who um, it's okay for them to be a loner. It's okay for them to isolate. It's they don't need to really, really be out there and be with people. Although um, the social skills and the social upbringing, the social being a social human being, which we all are in a sense, it is important for you to also learn skills in how to be with public because you will need this for jobs. You will need this for getting jobs. You will need this for finding a mate. Um, socializing the community, um, and that will hinder your growth. So even if we are talking about people who are shy and who do have some social anxiety and they do have um, isolative kind of personality, um, they can still learn skills that would hold them in a space in a safe way, such as, for example, skills of acting. Many actors um, play roles that uh, they kind of dissociate from themselves and play them very well in those roles. And then they get off the role and they get off the stage and then go to who they are. So sometimes this is what we need to do. We need to learn the skills as an actor to be with public. The other side is that maybe working with a therapist, you will also learn how to build 
a very deep connection for those relationships that you need, such as marriage or intimate relationship or having a best friend. You don't need to have hundreds of friends, but at least to have the skills of how to connect with one or two people where you can feel that those people are great, great, um, um, have a closeness into your heart. Um, and that might be sufficient enough. As far as the social anxiety, there are a lot of great, great skills that you can learn through hypnosis, through um, actual doing them, desensitization, and learning how to be in a particular way and keep doing it until you get uh, good at it. And then the shyness will go away or the anxiety gets minimized. Obviously, um, exercising and meditation brings down the anxiety, visualization of who you will be when you do a task will start to get you ready in order to uh, go into public and perform and do whatever it is that you need to be among public, which would scare you. So there are treatments for um, anxiety, there are treatments for depression, and there are definitely treatments for um, isolative or uh, different types of personality disorders that would get you to be in that space. And there's definitely treatments for the spectrum of the autism spectrum. So um, get help. You don't need to stay in anxiety. Uh, there might be also med medication management that might be medication therapy. And that would really support you. So take care of yourself. And if um, this is hindering your life, you need to get help, whether it's just a condition that you need to learn from, or it is actually a condition that is an illness and uh, you need to take care of it. So you deserve to uh, live a fulfilled life. So take care of yourself and get help. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane, and I am excited to have David Wood with us. He is a former consulting actuary of two Fortune 100 companies. He built the world's largest coaching business and becoming number one on Google for life coaching and coaching thousands of hours in 12 countries around the globe. As well as helping others, David is no stranger to overcoming challenges himself, having survived the full collapse of his paraglider and the fractured spine, witnessing the death of his sister at age seven, anxiety, depression, and national gong show. He coaches high-performing business owners to double revenue and their time off by focusing on less and being 30% more courageous in their business or career. He is also the co-author of upcoming book, The Mouse in the Room, because the elephant is not alone. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Fujian. Appreciate you having me on the show. Absolutely. So let's first get into kind of putting less 30% and gaining more. I think I, including everybody else, wants to know, how do you do that? Because I think everybody gets overwhelmed and it's like, I can't do more. I can't do more. I don't even know how to go to the next step. Sometimes I get, I'm, I got it where I am. And I've got this vision out there. One, I don't even know what I need to do to up my game to get to that vision. Two, it's too hard. 
three, um, I don't have time, David, to do all of that. I'm already full with what I have, with what I have. So tell us the jewels. We have executive function in our brain. That's one of the things we've evolved. So animals go about their routines, their patterns, their habits, and they follow their instincts. Unfortunately, humans have executive function of the brain, but we don't tend to use it as much as we could. So what happens is we fall into habits. We might wake up and check email and then we're lost. Right? We're just responding to things. Uh, we eat the things we've always eaten. Uh, I like to know that one coffee shop that I can always go to and get my favorite meal. And that's fine, unless we're not happy with the pace at which we're moving towards our goals, or we're not happy with our goals. So this is where coaching comes in for me. And I'm biased. I've been a coach for 20-something years. And at some times in my life, I've had five coaches, depending on what I want to work on. What we need to do is make sure we take regular time out from our patterns and our habits to use the executive function of the brain. And this is what happens when people meet with me on a coaching call. They take time out of their day and I say, what do you want? Now we start with say 12 months. All right. What would have you, so listeners, what would have you really be happy? Like you would call everybody you know and say, this is so awesome if you achieve this over 12 months. That's the beginning. Now, 12 months is too far out. So we've got to chunk it back. We need to layer our goals. So three months out, what would a win look like? Write down, say, three business things and three personal things. It would be a win and have you fully on track. And here's, here's the hard part. What will you agree not to care about? for the next three months because we want to do everything. We don't want to miss out and it's quite fun and we get dopamine and adrenaline from responding to text and email. But what, like if it really matters to you, what will you care about for three months and then what will you agree to put in a drawer? And that's not easy to do. But once you've done that, we can come back again to the next seven days and say, all right, over these seven days, these are my post-its on the wall that matter. Anything else that wants to come in is going to have to get past me because I'm going to put it in a drawer for the next week or the week after because I've already got my plan or I'll have a meeting with myself and I'll weigh it all up and I'll say, what can I drop this week? We need to have that step. Otherwise, I had one client, he was very ordered, very structured, but he would, when something would get in front of him, he'd add it to his calendar. There was no triage. There was no discernment. We need to be able to say, no, I'm not going to do Facebook until four o'clock. I'm not going to do that fun project. I'm not going to watch Netflix until eight because these things are more important. You, so what I'm also hearing from you is a reprioritization. And after I prioritize this new uh, concept that I want to put in, obviously some have to uh, take a back seat and shed for a while. Right, because we don't have unlimited time. We operate as if we did. We operate, oh, well, this has come up. Someone needs me to call them back. All right, I'll call them back. Really? Does that match your agenda? I want everyone to guard their time jealously. And keep checking, is it in alignment? Now it gets really tricky when we layer it even further and we come back to tomorrow. What will I do 
tomorrow? What matters to me? And a really great question. If I was only allowed to do two things tomorrow for my life and work, what would they be? That's a really great way to focus us. And then when you wake up, the game is, can you do those things before you do everything else? And you just watch what happens. It's amazing. You could even write it down, put it on your computer, put it on your desk, not check email, not check voicemail, not go to Facebook and just say, I'm going to do these two things, set my timer. And when these two things are done, I can do whatever I want. But you watch what happens. The mind will go, oh, I forgot to order those things on Amazon. I could just do that right now. Or, oh, I didn't, I didn't tell Jim about tonight. I'm going to be late. I, I should let Jim know. It's amazing what comes in to take us off track. That's where we want to use the discipline. I, I, I sometimes have a sheet of paper next to me. And when these ideas come into my head, I sometimes even start on them and then I say, David, step away from the distraction and I'll write down what it is I wanted to do so that when I finish the two most important things, I can come and handle these things that my brain thought were important. And I'll either do them or better still, put them in a drawer for next week and then we'll see what's going to make it into next week. So something that I'm hearing is that you we pay respect to every aspect, to all of my desires, to all the thought process that shows up, all the, even the distractions. I am respecting them. I'm not avoiding them. I'm not pushing them away, but I'm uh, categorizing and putting them into the right place so that I can focus completely onto one thing, create the result I want, and then come back and focus on something else. So it's this type of reprioritization and refocusing that creates that type of uh, excelling into something versus getting ourselves all uh, you know excited and perturbed about all the things that are coming and they're exciting to us, but it doesn't allow us to focus on something long enough to be able to create and manifest it. Yes, we want to put it in the right place and the right time. If you If you have a job and you've got a boss, you don't arrive to work and go, boy, what am I going to do? I don't know what to do. I'll just do whatever I want. You just imagine with if every employee was doing that, it'd be absolute chaos and the company wouldn't go anywhere. At work, you have your boss to provide that executive function. Okay, we're going to work together on your goals. We'll work out what matters. No, I don't want you doing that. Jenny's going to do that. And I don't want you to do that now. This is most important. Get this done by Thursday. Next week, you can work on this, right? We have someone else to help us with that when it comes to our own life. And if we run our own business, we don't want to run around like five-year-olds, just, just doing whatever calls to us, whatever shiny treat seems uh, most shiny right now. We want to use that executive function and keep checking is this the best use of my time? You also talk about why playing safe is the most dangerous thing that we could do. And what would it look like to um, stop even you know, further out to your comfort zone, like move away from your comfort zone? Because if you stay in it, it appears dangerous. Why do you use the word dangerous? Yeah, because we are creatures of comfort. We want to stick to our patterns. And the risk is on our deathbed, if we have played too safe, we will look back and say, I wish I'd given it more. 
I wish I'd spoken up. I wish I'd told that person I love them. I wish I'd asked that celebrity to endorse my product. I wish I'd spoken on stage. I wish I'd gotten into acting. I, I didn't do it because I was scared. I wanted to stay comfortable. You don't want on your tombstone, most of us don't want he or she stayed really comfortable. That's not what you're looking for. Now, I've got a high value on comfort. I love comfort. So there's nothing wrong with it. But if all we do is stay comfortable and never push ourselves to go into that edge zone where we actually need courage, the risk is we'll say, I didn't speak up enough. I didn't ask for what I wanted. I put up with too much stuff that I didn't want. I, I just recently realized that my life has been a series of stages where I feel like an imposter. I started professional entertaining and I couldn't sing. I started coaching without knowing what coaching was really about. I'm in a training course and, and I've started with clients. It was very scary. Speaking on stage is a terrifying thing for most people. And then recently I have gotten into acting and I went and auditioned for a, for a production of Dracula and we just opened this weekend. Terrifying terrifying for me to like go out and perform and we're going to miss a line and what I realized is when you're nervous when you have doubt that you can actually do the thing that you're beginning that's a sign you might be in the right spot because you are deliberately going out of your comfort zone to stretch yourself and I think that's where the growth is don't go too far don't do something that's going to have you lose sleep or just totally traumatize you but most of us are just playing comfortable. And after 25 years of leaning into what scares me, I can say, if we find that sweet spot where I'm a bit nervous, this is edgy, I got to take a deep breath and really go for this today. That's where I think life truly resides. It does, because that's where you feel alive. Yeah, it's again, it's not always comfortable. When we opened on Saturday, I was I was so scared. I was so scared. But then on Sunday, I had a good time because we'd already gone. We knew where everything went. And we'd opened in front of a paying audience already and it went well. Now I'm enjoying it. But I got to tell you, showing up for the audition when I didn't know how to audition that was very scary. Going to rehearsals with these people who've done, some of them have done 10, 15 plays already. Some of them teach acting. And I'm like, oh my God. But now I'm getting to the spot where it's becoming more comfortable. So what's going to happen next? Well, obviously I'm going to choose something else that's a bit more scary. Like it'll be a bigger production or there's a short film I just said yes to today. And I, I may not know how to do that. So we're constantly going into areas where we're called to go and we're afraid, but not too afraid that it's going to, we're going to absolutely, you know, lose sleep and hurt our health. Yeah, not, not enough to stop you, but just enough to exhilarate you. And then, yeah. Yeah. And you might be scared for a, for a while and then it does get, I find it gets easier and then you'll choose something else. So my question for everybody watching or listening is, if you were fearless, and I'm not saying you should be fearless, but if you were, what would you do differently? What would you say in your relationship? What would you say to your kids? What would you, um, 
Would you say no to some things that you don't want in your life? Would you tell the truth to some people? Would you go for something at work? You don't have to commit to these things because if, if you knew you had to commit to them, your brain wouldn't even tell you what they are. Your brain would hide these things. So it's just a what if. If I was fearless, I might do this, 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 and this. And then you might want to circle two or three things and say, all right, this week, I'm going to do these two or three things and I'll see how it goes. And if it goes well, you might go and pick some bigger things off the list for the following week. I also want to talk uh, about your new book, your upcoming book, The Mouse in the Room, because the elephant is not alone. Right. And this book is really about uh, transparency. And uh, so tell me what the mouse is and what the elephant is. I, thank you for asking that because I love talking about this book. This, this, is like, this is a legacy for me. I think this could really change the world. We all know about the elephant in the room. You see it. I see it. No one's saying anything. Uh, like, like at rehearsal last week, one guy was so tired, he was standing with his eyes closed during warm-up and no one was saying anything. I'm like, this is an elephant in the room. But the mouse, many creatures in the room are much more subtle. Um, and that's why I call them mice. And a mouse is any, any part of your experience. It could be a body sensation you're having, like your, your gut just clenched up and you're feeling, you're feeling a bit tight there. You might be feeling tired. It might be an emotion. Someone might say something and you feel a tinge of sadness hearing that, or you feel care and you want to help. These are all mice. It might be thoughts that are going through your head. You might, maybe they said something last week and you felt a contraction, like you felt like maybe they were criticizing you and, and you're not sure and you're feeling a, you know, a bit distant from that person. These are all mice. As a kid, I wasn't taught to even become aware of my own experience. It wasn't a thing to say, hey, David, how do you feel about that? I know we were going to go to the circus and now we're not. How is that for you? We didn't ask that in Australia and particularly of men. And now later in life, I'm learning, oh, my God, there's so much happening inside of us all the time. And often we'll skip over it and jump to some kind of a solution and I'll just present the end product. It's almost like there's a computer program running and I'm just going to spit out on the screen the end result. But you're not going to see what's happening inside. You're, you're not going to know that it could be positive things about how much I'm appreciating your background and how professional this setup. That's an appreciation mouse right there. It could be something you're tolerating. That's a toleration mouse. It could be a desire. You want something more in the bedroom. You want a promotion. You want more money at work. That's a desire mouse. So we've already got the mini book ready. You can get that on the website. And we're working on the full book right now. It'll be ready by, by January next year. I want everyone revealing their own experience to themselves. And then artfully and where appropriate, revealing that experience to whoever they're relating with so that they can get who you are in that moment. They might even be inspired to start naming some mice of their own. I imagine kids all around the world going up, mommy, can I name a mouse with you? I got a mouse I want to name. That's what I want. So there's a part of us um, that sometimes it's not even transparent to us. So when we kind of look at it, then we name it and, um, you know, honor it. 
um, and then choose to either share it or not, it, that's where you're talking about um, acknowledging those parts of us that appear to be private, but they're the most important factor. And if we can see them, express them, hear them, share them, then it also brings up the concept of the courage uh, that we need, the 30% courage that we need in any type of business career relationship that would just jump us up to the next level. Yes, you will need courage to name your mice. It can be scary. Uh, like one, one fear I have is that someone might say, oh, you're being too sensitive, right? Like my feelings are too much. If I say, hey, I felt, I felt like my cousin once at a wedding made a joke at my expense and everybody laughed. And um, often we won't know what our mice are, but a clue, and we cover this in the book, a clue is you just don't like it. You just don't like what's happening. You know it doesn't feel good. Now, if I could sit with that a little bit, and I did go outside and got some fresh air, sit with it, I might go, oh, I felt like people were making fun of me and it didn't feel good and I feel like I want to leave the wedding. Those are, those are uh, three mice. I don't feel good. Uh, I, it, some people even know, oh, it's in my belly. They know where it is in their body. And um, it seemed like it was at my expense and I want to leave right now. And I'm not going to leave because it's because it, it's someone's someone's getting married, someone who I care about. These are all mice that eventually I did get to share with my cousin. And we were so much closer after it. In fact, he was the one that approached me. He called me 10 years after the wedding and said, I, I'm doing a personal growth program and I'm cleaning up a lot of things in my past. And I'm realizing... I made a joke at your expense and I'm really sorry. I was like, oh my God. Yeah, now that you say it, this is what was going on for me. Boy, do I trust that guy now maybe three times more than I did before because he came to me and named one of his mice. David Wood, everyone, um, in one minute or even less, anything we haven't talked about, you really want everybody to know. No, just that I, I, I've got a gift basket of goodies for listeners uh, and, a, and a link for that. But I, I feel like we've covered some really good things about um, how life can be better, a little scarier, a little edgier, but ultimately better. Wonderful. David Wood, everyone, go get the book. And first of all, the gift. You can get the gift at myfocusgift.com and get the book, The Mouse is in the Room. Because the mouse in the room. That's right. Yeah, I've, I've got a what we've talked about, about achieving twice as much in half the time. There's a checklist and you can get that too at myfocusgift.com. You can also get the book at mouseintheroom.com. Thank you so much, David, for being in my show. My pleasure. Thank you. For everyone out there, create an amazing life for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye. 